Welcome to Meet the Developer at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our guest moderator from the Sunday Times, Paul Crouton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a well-known fact that it's practically illegal in this country not to be an enormous fan of Sir David Attenborough. For the last 60 years, he has taught generation after generation about the natural world as the face and the voice of natural history programming, not just in the UK, but around the world. His extraordinary encounters with creatures great and small have resulted in him being the only person to have won BAFTAs in black and white, color, HD, and 3D. With seven Emmys and two BAFTAs to his name, Anthony Geffen is also no stranger to award ceremonies. He has produced a number of Sadevi's more recent films, including Flying Monsters and Galapagos 3D, and their latest collaboration, Natural History Museum Alive, which was first screened on Sky One on New Year's Day. The app of the same name is in the App Store now. I think we have a clip or two. Sometimes the Natural History Museum gets really quite busy. Sometimes you want the place all to yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, the museum is going to be closing in five minutes. Well, tonight, I have the museum all to myself. But tonight is no ordinary night. History Museum Alive. Get out of the way. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sir David Attenborough and Anthony Geffen. Hello. Hi. Hello down there. Thank you, Mother. Now, David, I know you've been a huge fan of the Natural History Museum for a, an awfully long time. Can you tell us a little bit about how this collaboration with them came about and, and a little bit about your, your love for that particular museum? Uh, well, we've been working, I mean, it's perfectly true, as a kid, and I dare say lots of people here, uh, went to the Natural History Museum and it was a place of wonders. I mean, you suddenly saw the skeleton of a dinosaur. Thrilling. Uh, and not only that, but you also saw uh, tens of thousands of wonderful butterflies and birds and so on. So it was a great thrill. Uh, and we've worked a bit with the Natural History Museum in th for 3D because the first 3D thing we did was about pterosaurs, pterodactyls, flying reptiles. And, and we are sort of good pals with the Natural History Museum. And then last January, just about a year ago, less than a year ago, um, the boss of Sky was very pleased with the 
flying reptiles that we did a year ago. And he said, I want another one for this Christmas. He left it a bit late, if you're actually asking me, you know, because 3D is quite a lengthy business. Um, and he also said the, the, the Natural History Museum was very keen to do something which could lead to an app and varied apps to, to gather in new audiences for their museum. And we came up with this idea of, um, I mean, not a very original idea, but an idea that uh, at night on Christmas, close to Christmas, you know, all these things would come alive. Um, and that's how it happened. But it, it meant, I mean, it's quite quite tedious filming. I mean, we, the only time when you can really film the Natural History Museum in the, in the public galleries, of course, is when the museum is shut. So it meant that, I, I mean, I wrote the script quite quickly because it's a very easy script to write, really. Um, but it meant that once we got approved, the script approved, we had to go and shoot all the bits that I'm appearing in, and the museum bits, within 15 days. But you had to do it every night. I mean, we got there at 7 o'clock in the evening, and we had breakfast at about 11 o'clock, and uh, lunch at about 2 o'clock in the morning, and left at 7 o'clock and wanted to go home to bed. I love you still call it breakfast at 7 o'clock in the evening. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, there can't be many things that you do... Um, for the first time in your career after the illustrious career you've had. But in this film, as we saw a clip there, you, you did a bit of acting. How was that? Yeah, well, it's not, I mean... I, he was quite good, wasn't he? Well, I tell you, I mean, as a matter of fact, you feel a right twit. Let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, you really do, because uh, you're supposed to be reacting something isn't there. I mean, it's bad enough. I mean, I wouldn't mind doing the acting bit of the glorious Hollywood beauty. You know, I, I can, can see myself doing that. Have a word with Sky but, next time. Uh, but doing it with a dinosaur is difficult. And, and, uh, and also, you don't actually have anything there at all. But what you do have is a man with a long pole and a red ball on the end of it. And the red ball is supposed to be the head of this thing you're looking at. So he wanders around being instructed as to where to go. And I had to sort of look there and say, ah, you know, all that stuff. And I, I, I as I say, I looked a real twit. Um, and, not quite a little bit less of a twit when they finally put the CGI in and you saw the animal. But at the time, it's, um, no, it's not my game, really. Anthony, how much of a twit do you think he looked? I think, I, think, I, I think Debbie was actually fantastic. I mean, to be the only person literally in the film and to have to keep coming out and doing takes into air, you know, often there, were, there wasn't even a puppet or there wasn't any eyeline. It's pretty hard, actually, uh, over and over again. And, you know, we had spent hours setting up that shot, so David knew he had to get it done quickly. Uh, I think it's pretty hard, actually. And, and you know, there's a, there's a fine line uh, when you're acting into nothing, uh, as we found out, you know, getting it right. And I think, you know, I think the film is testament to that. And not only that, the critics have loved it. So you know. I, I, I tell you what, one of the problems that really was for me is that, OK, I, uh, viewers, I spend my lifetime looking at animals, and if I said it happened, people thought it was, it was true. They could believe me. And, uh, and it was true. I mean, if I see a polar bear, I see a polar bear. Um, so there's no acting in that. Um, and I was very keen that, uh, that people should see in natural history programs that I wasn't an actor. So how are you going to mix it suddenly with CGI's, with things that aren't there? And, that was one of the reasons why a year ago, when we think, made a thing about pterosaurs, we deliberately left the skeletons in, the skeletons which moved around, so that people knew that you know the whole thing was a, a clever gimmick, really, but a gimmick with a reason. 
And the, but so they, once they understand and they became party to the agreement that okay, this is a, this is a, got a game in it, kind of yeah. let, a pretend, then you're then you're okay. But that was quite an important thing to do. And, we, and, and actually, the, the paradox is that the animal, the skeletons moving and animated, is particularly exciting. I mean, it really is a very interesting thing to see, almost more interesting looking at the animal itself, I mean, because you see the way the joints move and so on. So it's quite thrilling. And we kept it and we exploited it quite a lot in this mm. film. And what amazed me uh, was the. I mean, we've all seen CGI. We started with Jurassic, well, before Jurassic Park, but we, we've seen the progression of it. The level of detail and something. I think we've got a clip of a, of a dodo here that we can show. The dodo probably found on fruit. There was a lot of it on the island. I'll try him with a bit. Come on. What do you make of that? <laughs> oh! That's a very powerful beak. In fact, it may well have been adapted for crushing shells and crustaceans for the sake of the calcium. Well, I'll let you into secret, actually. Um, Don't tell them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seemed to me that on the, on the, on the pterosaur film that we reached that the, the uh, CGI animations they produced was a new level. I mean, it was the animals are totally believable. They they had believed they behaved in a way which was both natural and, as it were, unpredictable. I mean, you, so you really felt they were real things. And there's a team which Anthony's uh, outfit have within within Atlantic Productions, Colossus Productions, Zoo. called Zoo. And and I would go to, and I'd see all these people beavering away at computers, you know, working out what these things should be. And I I started talking to the po the boss man. There was a very, very quiet and, and uh, reserved man. I kept saying, very good, wonderful. And he was saying, oh, thank you very much, thank you very much. And eventually, I, I had, after we'd been working together for some months, I only then did I discover from him that actually he was a fossil expert. He went to university, he studied zoology, and he studied fossils, and his heart was absolutely in it. And that's why that's those things. His name is James Prosser. He'd be hate me for telling you that, or the, the, because he's the modest most man in the business. But he is fantastic. He's a near genius. But it, it, it sounds like you work with a huge cast of people on this well, if, if you're working on CGI's, I mean, there are what ten people in that in that room there. there, there but there are lots of other. But of course, with communications these days, you you they they sometimes working away just on the feathers, and then overnight you will send it to the the world expert who's in New Zealand, and and when you come in in the morning, the bloke will say, well, I think they were they lay a little flatter or whatever, and you you are modified it accordingly. So if you had to describe, ask how many people worked on on that, I would find it extremely difficult to get an answer. But it's certainly in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. You know, it's a, it's a lot of people and a lot of work. And all around the world, and that's, I mean, mm, it's, that's it's right. a global production. Yeah, James was very clever. What he realised is that there are only, so with the photo resolution we wanted, this is 4K, right on the cutting edge of technology, and to get that resolution, there are only, you know, a handful of people in each area with skin textures, with feather textures, who can get it right. So we had to go and find and work with the very best people. Fido, Milk, I mean, the best companies around the world. You, t you mentioned, sorry, but you mentioned guys from the film Gravity come, came and worked with you for a little while and then... They were working with us before they worked on Gravity. 
we loaned them were. to They were. They were. They absolutely they were. were. We loaned them, didn't we, Dave? Yeah, yeah, we said they could take time off, do a bit of gravity, you know. But <laughs> Go to the Oscars, enjoy yeah. yourself. But, but it's true. I mean, Chris Parks, actually, I worked with Chris Parks' father. Who's Chris Parks' father is an optical genius, who, um, a scientist who worked on microscopic animals in a series I made in 1980. So it was a long time ago. And he was the boss man who did all the microscopic work of, of animals. And Chris is his son. And I said, he won't, you must, don't repeat this, but I said to, his, <laughs> I said to Chris, um, uh, oh, it's lovely to meet you. How is your father? And he said, uh, oh, he's fine. And I said, is he still working? And he said, um, well, you know, he's in his 80s. You know, we give him little things to play with just to make him <laughs> And I said, Christopher, I am 87. Yes, uh, <laughs> That's him told. Um, there's a, a, another clip we've got of one of my favourite exhibits at the Museum of Dippy getting her skin. I don't know what you get skin, but getting her skin put on, perhaps. It's the moment, uh, it, com the moment it comes alive, really. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. this, I think, shows brilliantly the real level of kind of complexity that CGI got to. So if we add a little bit of skin and flesh, we can get some idea of what she actually looked like. for Christmas, I think, next year. Um, just as a quick straw poll, how many people watched Alive? Hands? Oh, quite a lot. Yeah. OK. <laughs> um, I thought it'd be more. How did you choose which animals you were going to well, portray in here? Well, the problem, the problem uh, once you've got the idea, is if you're not very careful, it's going to be very repetitive. You know, you see a fossil there and say, oh, we're going to bring it to life, and it becomes alive and it hops down. That's the end of that story. And then you're going to do it again and again. So you had to pick things that there was a reason for them coming to alive, either that it was a forgery or they got the thing wrong or that there was an interpretation or new interpretations or something. And each time you tried to make it come alive in a different way. So sometimes you make it as you do with the mower, smashing the glass case in order to get out. Sometimes the animals did interesting things. We only really knew recently that the huge giant sloth, the extinct giant sloth, ground sloth, actually was a digger. And we got him digging up half the museum in, in, in animation now. Yeah. Um, Anthony, tell us a bit about the, the technical challenges of producing something like this. The, the, well, the in, in a funny sort of way, it would have been a lot easier had we just been making a film where, where we had imaginary creatures because there's, nothing to, there's no benchmark. But you know, working with David Attenborough, you've got to get it right. And David wanted the creatures to be right. So the first complexity was working with the museum, and they were fantastic, and their curators, with the CGI team, with David, to get each creature. Because the, the magic of this, I think, is that these the real creatures are more interesting than any you could ever make up. And you know, that's the, that, those are the questions of the film that David wants to find out about. So, that was a big challenge. Photo, real, real creatures, real movement is very, very hard. So that's just the, the, the CGI side, which is hard. And we were trying to do a lot of things. You know, the reason we do 3D is to really 
create something which is different, which is innovative, which is pushing the bounds. And we didn't have the technology when we started this film to finish it. I never like to tell David that, but it, the technology wasn't there. So we, and you know, as usual, we finished about two hours before we put it out. Uh, uh, and we're still tinkering with it. Um, but that's, so that's the first step. The second area is the technology. I mean, David picked a fantastic place, a museum where the 3D looks very, very good. But actually, the technical stuff we were trying to do, you have to get each creature, even though it's not there, to be in exactly the right position. Because if it's not, the sequence won't work. If David's reactions aren't right and his eyeline isn't right, so there's a lot of complexities. 3D is already complex with lots of people still and heavy cameras. But actually, to get every detail right, because you would know if it wasn't right, was a big, big challenge for the team. And you know, we had a huge team, as David knows. We literally took over the museum every night. Uh, but it couldn't have been done without the collaboration. The museum were amazing throughout. I mean, they, you know, very accommodating. And also, their experts were absolutely critical. You know, and, I, and what I like about this film is these creatures are as real, I think David would agree, as real as you're going to get for a long time. Now, you mentioned that um, at the start that the app was um, part and parcel of the film. It, was, you know, it came alongside. So let's talk a little bit about the app. What was the, what's the thinking behind it? What were you trying to achieve by producing this? Well, um, the, the business of bringing an animal to life, a dinosaur to life, means that you have to produce a huge volume of data in which your every little cent square centimetre is plotted mathematically. So you ended up with this great thing. But what, that, that's where the cost lies, and that's a huge amount of cost. But once you've got that, then you can use it in all kinds of different ways. You can use it by putting the skin on, you can make it run, you can make it jump up and down, and you could make it into an app. Um, and so that, that data is there. If you said to the museum now, just go and make um, uh, data on dodos and dinosaurs and whatever, they would say, and quite rightly, it'll cost a mint. But in, so the, but in fact, because we made a film first, and that, that data is already there, it means you can take it, transplant it, and then use it to produce um, a, an app on the app a CGI image of a dinosaur, which you can turn up and upside down, you make revolve, you can look at its skeleton and so on. And the museum is always on the lookout of finding new ways of engaging its audience. Um, and the museum will, will have been talking about using, getting an app in some way that would exploit some of the treasures and display some of the treasures in a completely new way. And I think they're probably first in the world. I don't know, Anthony may know about I that. I think of this kind, yes. I mean, there are other people who have attempted apps, but I think this is a very rich, very interactive app. And so it is, of its kind, the first. Yeah. Well, let's have a look at it. I think we can, we can sample a, a little bit of it here. Welcome to the Natural History Museum. Through this app, you can meet specimens of the most astonishing extinct creatures in the world. And watch them come to life. Join me, David Attenborough, at the Natural History Museum, place of wonders. So it's quite an immersive experience. You, you get to play around with things and move them around and, and, and really I mean, I think, kind of get I think in amongst what, it. What we, what we wanted, we, we talked a lot about the app, is we wanted it to be very different. There's no point in just producing elements of the same thing all over again. So we had a different team, and they were working, as David says, with all our rich assets. 
But what I think this is, and this is exciting, it's you, the user, who gets, in a way, to become David, the David Attenborough in the film here. You can choose which creature, how to skin it, how to put it back to life, how to learn about it. And you can be two or you can be 103. It doesn't make any difference. And I think you can explore it at home, anywhere in the world. But there's another element to the act where you can actually go into the museum and start to interact with the exhibits. And I think you know, that, that's very exciting. It's a different digital journey. But it couldn't have come about had we not done the film. So that the two are sort of locked together. And I think they'll be feeding from the film back to the app and the app to the film. But I also think, hopefully, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not eventually millions of kids, hopefully, because it's a you know, very well-populated museum, will go on journeys and learn things that they wouldn't have you know, learned otherwise. Because you can do stuff, you, if you have the app, when you go into the museum, it interacts with some of the exhibits, You can go to right? positions where you effectively interact. I mean, we haven't lined it all up because there's still problems, as you know, with bandwidth and different devices and different phones. But, but you can go to, effectively to that uh, exhibit. And there are treats we've put, as it were, around the museum where you can find out and get certain things that you learn about the museum on top of that. And I think this is the beginning of the journey, to be honest with you. I think this is stage one of the app. If the app works, I'd love to enrich it because there's a lot more we could put in the app. And I think you, you mentioned also that this, the, the film might go to cinemas and it, it becomes this global thing in the way that some of the other ones have and it's been seen... I hope so. I mean, you know, Flying Monsters, which David mentioned, started uh, 3D and 2D on television, then it went to cinema, then it's gone to IMAX around the world. It's played in 60 to... I don't know, it's, it's going to have played in 100 countries by the end of this year. It's going to last 10 years. You know, we, we love the, I think we love the idea that it's both on television, it's an app, and, you know, for years and years, people can go and learn about it in an IMAX, you know, or see it in an IMAX theatre. And we shoot them. This is another complexity, really, which we've given ourselves. We shoot them as though we have to shoot them for the IMAX. So everything is at the highest possible resolution. That's a huge challenge. If we were just shooting it for television, it would be a lot easier. But it's not what we want to do. These are very special projects, and we want them to be explored on different digital formats. I think it's really interesting that a TV programme now is just the gateway to the experience. Um, you know, obviously you used to get TV, you still do get TV programmes which are TV programmes or films which are films, but this seems to be taking it into a slightly different direction, whereas you watch the film, then you get the app, then you buy the T-shirt, then you do that and it carries on for, for years and years. And that's because the audience has, has, has broken up. I mean, you know, I started television, there was only one television network in the country, and only one television ne network in the Western Europe, in point of fact, just BBC, and that was live. Well, the situation could hardly be more different now, and what is produced for television, by television networks, is now available, as everybody here will know, better than me, in, in a multitude of different ways. You can look at it on, you know, when you're on an aeroplane, you can look at it on an iPad, you can look at it on your phone, you can dial it up, you can get all kinds of ways. Uh, iPlayer and the BBC repetition. So the audience is no longer sitting in front of armchairs in a family and saying, oh yeah, look at that television. You're doing it how you want to do it, where you want to do it, and when you want to do it. And, and the job of program makers is to make that possible. Although I'd say this is the first one we've done, David, where we've probably thought through the you know, all the digital formats m more clearly from the beginning than we have with the others. I mean, you know, because if we know, as David rightly says, it's going to happen, let's create unique elements of it for each format. Otherwise, you're just chucking one thing from one format onto the next. Now, I have a, a funny feeling that we might have some questions. So we're going to wrap up here and throw it open to the rest of you. Has anyone got a question for David or Anthony? <laughs> Quite a quick response in the front row. Um, I think we're going to have some mics coming around. Bear with me. 
what do you think is the most encouraging thing about the way we humans are treating the world right now? And, and uh, one more thing at the end. If this, you know, if we were filming a documentary right here, right now, how would you give a commentary of what's happening in this room? Well, I don't know the answer to any of those questions. <laughs> Um, as to how the, the, the world's in trouble. I mean, it's no good me trying to pretend that, 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 it, that it's all, everything's okay. It's not. And uh, it would be dishonest to say that it is. Is the world going to get worse? It depends how you look at it. I mean, for example, we are concerned about global warming. We may think, that, and, and climate change, and we may think that many of the disasters that have been happening right now as a result of it could be, couldn't be. Uh, but if it all gets warmer, um, then the south of England could become like the North Africa. On the other hand, uh, it could be also that the ice in the Arctic melts, and then suddenly it's going to be possible to do trade around the Northwest Passage through the North to Europe from America. That could be good. There are, it's, it's not everything is disaster, but but nonetheless, by and large, things are going to go be quite tough over the next hundred years. And we are going to lose some animals, there's no doubt about that. Evolution doesn't say works fast enough to replace the ones that we're losing. So that the, there, are, there are animals that are being filmed now that you wouldn't be able to film in another 50 years' time. So it's a mixed picture. Um, and all you've got to do is to say, well, it's, this is our place, and we've got to do what the best we can. We can't give up on it. We can't say it doesn't matter. You just have to flog on whenever you can, find hope, make it a little bit better. That you do. But but that's all. Anybody else? There's a young lady behind the camera there. Hello. I'm Scottish. You might not understand what I'm saying. <laughs> um, firstly, I am completely privileged to be able to speak to you right now. And thank you for giving me a magical 28 years of life on a Sunday afternoon. It's been great having you. Um, my question is, if you could come back reincarnated as any animal, what would it be? A sloth. <laughs> Hanging upside down in a tree. Nibbling a bit here and there. Going back to sleep. Not bad. Very nice. Um, anyone over here? Lady I could Mc give you a spicier answer, actually, come to think of it. Hold on. <laughs> Go on, let's have the spicy answer. The sexual lives of some animals beg a belief. This can be another one of those secrets. Who are you talking about? Or what are you talking about? Oh. His lips are sealed. Um, where was my friend over here? There she is. Go on. Um, I'd just really like to know actually what you'll next be working on and what we can look forward to in terms of your next production. Well, I leave on Saturday for the Kalahari Desert. Uh, well, I'll be there for a week or so filming meerkats, doing some interesting things, I think. And then I go to Borneo uh, with Anthony. You coming? Yeah. <laughs> well, he, I mean, he, he's the boss of the outfit. He doesn't always have to come, but he does. 
and, and with a team from Atlantic, and we're making another 3D series, but about the evolution of flight, how flight was developed. An obvious reason, an obvious suitable thing for 3D, because things not just exploiting two dimensions tied to the ground, but can suddenly take off and fly into the screen or out of the screen or wherever you want them. So we're dealing with insects, and then we go on to pterodactyls, pterosaurs, which are flying reptiles. Flying reptiles, we go to birds, and from birds we go to bats. Um, and that starts, we're doing, we've already shot a bit of stuff, amazing stuff actually, uh, in Rome, uh, where there are huge assemblies of starlings, hundreds of thousands of them, and they all settle in the trees. And, and the crew I've been working with very imaginatively have put 3D cameras in the trees. So you see all these, these birds, these starlings coming in and like a pell-mell and just falling onto the tree and falling up online. Terrific stuff. But, so that's what we've started doing. But we go to Borneo um, in three or four weeks and we'll be getting a lot of more of the really fascinating things uh, that, that fly. Well, there's a question actually I want to ask, which, so I'll abuse my position. Um, why is it called a murmuration of starlings? Somebody makes it up. There are, it's, it's, I'm convinced it's true. There are people who collect things, and there are some people who just, all they want to do is to imagine that there are collective nouns for something. <coughs> and I'm sure there's somebody somewhere inventing these, these sort of... What's the collective names. noun for David Attenborough fans? Then? <laughs> no, never mind. So who, that was, in the film, there is a saber-toothed cat with enormous great teeth, and he's got the most ridiculous name. He's called... Smilodon? Yeah, who invented that? <laughs> well, it's quite a smile. Uh, terrifying. Who else? Uh, lady over there in the back row. Um, hello. Um, I was just wondering, of all the animals that you bring to life in the programme, which is your favourite and why? In the programme? My favourite... If I, if I can extend it a bit, my favourite fossil animal that we brought to life was the one that we brought to life a year ago, uh, which was the pterosaur, which was the biggest flying thing that ever took to the ground. F a wingspan 40 feet across, 10, 11, 12 metres across, a vast thing. Um, and we, we, I mean, no, it existed. The bones we've got, it's not just one example, we've got complete skeletons of a whole range of them. These immense monsters were flying above the dinosaurs. Imagine that. And we have no idea, actually we pretend we have, but we really have no idea how the damn things got into the air. With a wingspan of that, how, you can't flap. So how do you do it? I mean, you watch a pigeon get into the air, and the pigeon works like mad to get up. If you watch a, a swan get into the air, a big thing has to run along the the lake, the surface of the lake, getting up ground speed and then spreads its wings and, and off it goes. But 30 foot, 40 wingspan? How did it fly? I don't know. And um, th that's my, really my favourite prehistoric animal to bring back to life. Good evening. Um, you've sort of answered my question already, but if you could... I'll give you a different answer. <laughs> um, if you could fly out anywhere, any part of the world again tomorrow, and stay there for a month, where would you go? Well, I mean, I take it literally, you really mean a month. Um, I, would probably go, I would probably go to Northern Australia, uh, Northern, uh, Northern Queensland, 
Um, it's just a great place. You've got wonderful rainforest, unique rainforest. You've got the birds of paradise in it. You've got bowerbirds. You've got tree kangaroos, would you believe, on the one hand. And then you go down and there's a barrier reef down in the river and down in the sea, which is fantastic. I mean, the richness of the barrier reef is simply unbelievable. And you've got lovely people. I mean, the Australians are great people. And the food is something which you're going to like. Not necessarily, I won't say exactly where it was that I spent the month when hating every mouthful that I put in my, that I chewed. But it's not like that in Australia. You get good food in Australia. So, and there's wine. And it's, I don't know why I'm staying here. We thought you were all about the natural history, but actually it's just a, a big party you're after, isn't it? Is there, is there an animal that you've not seen that you want to? Um, oh, there are lots of things I haven't seen. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a fabulous hummingbird up in the high um, um, Andes in Ecuador that has the most extraordinary displays. Um, it's got long uh, quills that come out of its tail, each with a little pennant on the end. And, and the female, <laughs> female sits on the branch and says, OK, Buster, see what you can do, you see? And Buster has to get up, and then he's got to hover in front of the female only about oh, five or six inches from it. And then, while he's stationed in the air, which takes a lot, of, a lot of flapping, he then has to erect these quills and cross them over his head while he's sitting there. And it takes a lot, a lot, a lot of energy. And you can see him. He said, he said OK, OK, OK. Oh, blimey. And it has to go and perch. And then he sits there, panting for a bit. And she takes no notice at all. And so he tries again. But it's a great bird. Great bird. Love to see it. Anyone else? Sorry, this is a little slightly less exciting question. And, but more about the app, actually, because I've been looking at your app while you've been talking, and it's a really beautiful app, and the images are fantastic and things. And uh, So you've got £3.60 of my money, uh, et cetera, already, um, which is good. But a quick question is, when you, I noticed how the the way you've designed it from the architecture point of view, the way that you're exposing the video clips, if you, you sort of put in a key or a little game to find out the symbols around that, just sort of um, understanding the thinking behind that, is that trying to engage kids in terms of trying to do it before you expose the video? What's the? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, the team that designed this, who work at Atlantic and outside Atlantic and Colossus, um, you know, are trying to find different ways of bringing in different audiences. And one of the ways is is searching for things and not having everything just absolutely spelt out. Sometimes worries me from the slightly older school whether you're going to find X or you're going to find Y. But I, but that's the way we've designed it, and I think I think it's going to work. And you know, kids are an important part of this app. They really are to get them engaged in 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 you know, the museum and the creatures in the museum. That's an interesting question, isn't it? Where, where you go from education to entertainment and what's more important and how you try and get the balance between the two. I, I don't believe there's a difference between the two. I mean, if, if it's good entertainment, it's educational. If it's good education, it's entertaining. I mean, it really is true. I mean, I, I think you'd learn more by watching uh, Porridge about human, about male delinquency or whatever or another, than you would read by reading an awful lot of textbooks of, of criminology. And, and similarly, uh, in, in, uh, uh, if you don't make an, uh, a natural history program, which has real pull in it and real excitement in it, uh, then people aren't going to take a, a, on board the information anyway. So the two things come together. If they're good of their kind, 
Um, entertainment is, should be educational. Educational programs should be entertaining. And I, think, I think it's also about storytelling, isn't it, David? You know, you tell a good story and you take the audience with you, and, and you're doing everything at the same time. And that's that's what we try to do. I mean, some people might think, "Gosh, it's entertainment," you know, this the, the alive. But but actually, there's lots of layers of lots of things going on in the film. I mean, obviously, you've achieved um, an incredible amount over the last 87 years. Is there anything else that you'd like to do that you've got yet to sort of achieve in life? Um, no, I mean, we've only, just, we've only just started on 3D, you know. I mean, we, we've been at it for how long? Two, three years? Four years. Four years. But four years is nothing. We're, we're, we're still learning about it. We're still uh, working out how really to, to use it and when to use it. Um, 3D is not just like a paint that you paint over the whole thing. It's very, very... has different effects in different places and different times. And we're still... We're still working at it. We're still learning it. I'm not an advocate for thinking that 3D should, everything should be in 3D. No, I don't particularly want to see a newsreader in 3D. Okay, it might be, but so what? But there are subjects which are really, really illuminated by 3D. Um, and we're, we're, doing, we're doing one of them. I think the other thing is, you know, 3D at the moment might not appear. You know, people have bought 3D televisions. There isn't a lot of content. But actually, we, we've been lucky enough, I suppose, because we're at one of the hubs of, of 3D, to get shown the things that are coming. And glasses free television is not that far away, where you just change channel with no glasses. Uh, and we've seen a, a tablet recently, which we were just blown away by. I mean, you literally, you know, because you can distance it at your own comfort level, you, you are immersed in a 3D world. And those will be arriving this year. So this, this world of 3D is about... To, you know, to come, and what, what, what we're excited about is we've made these hopefully on the highest resolution so that they can really show people what you can do with 3D. But as David says, we're just beginning this journey, and we've come, I think, quite a long way. There's a long way to go, and on the new production, Conquest of the Skies, you know, we're developing new technology so that we can now fly uh, unmanned flying vehicles off the ground with 3D equipment and look at things in a way that we've never seen before, let alone 2D, but in 3D. So it pushes us, uh, and it's very exciting to, to, to innovate. Can I have a question? Have you told the insurance company you're going to put a 3D camera on this thing that's unmanned and going to fly through the forest? <laughs> We're going to talk about that afterwards, David. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to have you under it. <laughs> There's a lady there. My parents both worked for the BBC Br Br Natural History Unit in Bristol for a long time, um, and my dad would always come home um, from, from filming trips and things with sort of st all sorts of stories. Some that I thought most of them were probably true, others I thought maybe they were maybe fabricated. But I ever wondered, in your sort of travels around the world, have you ever had a moment where you were like, well, this is a bit dangerous or something went wrong? Because of the sort of things that would happen on camera trips, you never felt like there was anything going wrong or. All the time. <laughs> were there any no, in well, particular? Well, yeah. um, no, not not major catastrophes, but but in fact, you know, you what we do now is to make these making of programs, which show you all the bits that go wrong. And there are some bits that I find actually now, looking at them, thank goodness I wasn't involved because they look catastrophic. I mean, there's a there's a shot of a chap in a terrible hot air balloon going straight into a tree, into a bear battery, which makes my heart leave my chest. Um, but by and large, what goes wrong is that is not the things that happen, it's the things that don't happen. I mean, what goes wrong is that you sit there and nothing happens. You know, the, 
a bird just sits on the left and looks at you, and you know, for God's sake, do something. Uh, but so th there's no, there aren't dramatic catastrophes. But I'll let you into a big secret. David does do rather like in the Bond movies his own stunts, and uh, in in Flying Monsters, which is the film David was referring to with the giant pterosaurs, uh, th there's a moment where David wrote into the script that he was going to hang glide 2,000 feet above. Lyme Regis in a hang glider and then have a pterosaur flying over the top of it. And so this was going to be in a very elaborate and complicated sequence until we rang the insurance company. And they said, there is no way we are going to insure a national treasure <laughs> above Lyme Regis hanging from, from... Anyway, it was all we thought very hard about it. And David still did it in a fairly dangerous, I think, fairly dangerous way, which is to do it in a, in a hang glider. I mean, to do it in a glider. Um, but uh, so anyway, David, you know, all, of, all the stunts you'll see in the films are always carried out by David, just like <laughs> Daniel Craig. <laughs> he actually abseiled down the side of the building to get here. Um, where was the... Where was, over here, right. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask if you had a bucket list. Uh, of things I want to do... Yeah, that you have done, Before I turn yeah. up my toe. No, I'm, I've, I've crossed most of them off, to be honest. I mean, you know, I, I can't... I thought that you would have had have to stop giving, you know, going gallivanting around the world when I was in perhaps reached 60. Well, that was 27 years ago, and and uh, and and I've just been fantastically lucky um, uh, that I. I mean, I've got friends, I've got relations who are my age who, who can't move, you know, um, and and they they simply can't get out of their wheelchairs. So it's not virtue, it's not exercise, it's not anything. It's just luck and that I am still around here, still doing it, still going out to the Kalahari, still going off to Borneo, which I love. I love all those things. And so I've done all the big ones that I wanted to do if I would have had a bucket list. I have actually ticked off. But I'll tell you another secret. You can dive on the Barrier Reef more than once and be thrilled. And every time you do it, it's a huge, huge thrill. There was a young man tucked away back there. We get um, our friend there, the mic. Um, what age were you when you discovered your interest in animals? I can't remember a time uh, when I wasn't interested in animals, and I would think that almost everybody in the room would say the same. Every kid at the age of four is fascinated. To turn over a stone, he sees a slug, and he thinks, how fantastic, how's it moving? What are those little things at the front? Has it got eyes on the end of it? What's it eat? Kids are fascinated with the natural world, and it can be that when they, as they grow up, so they see more things, including all the stuff that's in the store, and get fascinated. But if they actually lose the interest in the natural world, they've lost one of the most precious things they have. Um, and people don't. I mean, the, the story of natural history broadcasting is the, dis is the discovery, which may have been uh, the, the program makers or the program controllers may have forgotten that or not believed that the public at large loved natural history, but the public at large hadn't forgotten. They love them. And, and the, the programs that we put out on television, they were... Back in the 50s, they were um, quite revolutionary, really. There weren't many broadcasting organizations, apart from the BBC, that were showing natural history and taking it seriously. Now, everybody does, but then they didn't. And there will always be an audience for natural history. And there will always be people who haven't actually seen um, an, a lion catch a wildebeest. So natural history programming has a big future, just as it has a great past. Right, we have time for only two more questions. So. Young man here, number one, make it a good one. There's a mic just coming. 
Um, what would you say was your favourite filming experience? My favourite? Filming experience. <coughs> filming experience. Oh, I would think it's probably watching Birds of Paradise display in New Guinea. Yeah. What about the favourite country to explore, apart from Australia, obviously? But is there one country that you try and persuade I, people to make films about? I, I'm very sorry I've not, not been to the heart of the Gobi Desert. Um, th there's not a lot there. That's the reason I haven't been there. And you can't get the BBC to send you make a natural history film on animals to places where there's hardly any animals. So it's quite tricky. So I've never been there. But I wish I had. Right, last question over here somewhere. There's a gentleman in the, next to the, uh, the camera over there. Hi, David. Um, Hi. My question is about the future of programme making, really. And I just wonder whether you worry that if CGI keeps getting better, that program makers might eventually think we don't need to send people gallivanting around the world and future David Attenboroughs might be stood in front of a green screen rather than you know, doing the sort of things that you've done for the last many years. The, the, the question you asked is a very, very real and important one. Um, I don't think, I mean, the CGI is quite expensive, let's get that straight, so that if it's cheaper to go out and film a, a, a dormouse uh, in the countryside, uh, than getting a CGI one. It is cheaper. Um, but nonetheless, there's a, a profound truth and danger in what you're asking, because you can make things do things just because you think they... You're, you're wanting to be honest, and you think if only that thing just uh, wiggled its tail a different way, it would be very exciting. And you can make it do it. And there are classic examples of filmmakers who tried to make their subjects do what they thought they should do because they are being the truth. Now, you can do that with CGI more convincingly than ever, ever before. And it could well be that the only reason for having a kind of nature jockey like me um, is that people will actually accept that if this, this character that they've got to know now over the years says it's so, it is so, and he's not telling the truth, which is why, I, that he really is telling the truth. And that's one of the reasons why uh, I, I, I cherish um, that confidence and why I'm very anxious that when you make a film like the animals in, in the zoo in the Natural History Museum coming to life, you make it absolutely clear what it is you're doing and what is real, what is real and what is not real. But, but your question is a very good one. If unscrupulous people could make the most sensational Natural History film you ever saw in your lives and they could make it so that uh, things happen that never could possibly happen in the world, that's a danger. Um, it's thrilling to hear that you've got no intention of retiring because no one here will let you. Um, on behalf of everybody here, thank you very much to both of you for, for coming down. <laughs> Mr. David Attenborough and Anthony Gethin. <laughs>